Brothers and sisters, I would invite you at this time to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We will again be reading verses 3 through 14, uh, but the sermon today will focus in upon verses 6, the very end of it, on through to verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the proclamation of it this morning. We have again read all of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, because I will remind you, in the Greek, these verses are locked together. They are locked together grammatically, being one long sentence, and they are locked together thematically, giving all glory to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for our redemption in Jesus the Christ. As you know, verses 3 through 6a give glory to God the Father, for he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. As we will see, verses 11 through 14 give glory to the Holy Spirit, for through him and by his agency we have come to partake of the eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. When we believed in Christ, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. But here in verses 6b through 10, glory is given to God the Son, For he, in the Incarnation, has redeemed us by his shed blood. In him, the Christ, who was and is the Son of God incarnate, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That is Ephesians 1.7. This entire passage, Ephesians 1.3-14, is critically important for it sets the tone for this letter to the Ephesians. Paul will explicitly state his purpose for writing later in the epistle. His desire is that God would be glorified as Christians comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians 3, 18 through 19. Stated differently, 
Paul's purpose in writing is to fix our eyes upon the love of God that has been showered upon us in and through Christ Jesus. His prayer is that God would strengthen us to comprehend how great that love is, so that we might be moved to marvel at it, to give all glory to God, and to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. As I have said before, uh, the theme of this epistle is unity in the inaugurated new creation. In Christ there is a new creation, for in him and through him the glory of the new heavens and earth will be ushered in, for he has earned it by his obedience. And in Christ there is a new humanity, for he has redeemed for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This new creation is here now by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul has said elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But of course, we know that we await its full consummation when Christ returns. I will say it again, for it is so important to note this, that the theme of this epistle is unity in the inaugurated new creation. Christians, no matter if they be Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, are unified in Christ. They are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That, as you know, is the application that Paul begins to present in 4.1, which is the beginning of the second half of his epistle. But what is the theological rationale for this application? In other words, what is the doctrinal basis for Paul's exhortation to pursue unity and peace with one another as Christians? And the answer is our shared union with Christ. We are to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because in Christ, by virtue of our union with him through faith, we are one. The truth is this. We have been adopted into one family. We have been reconciled to the same Father. We share the same inheritance. And all of this is through our union with Jesus the Christ. In Christ Jesus we are one, and for this reason we are to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This theme, our union with one another by virtue of our shared union with Christ, will be greatly expanded later in the book of Ephesians, but it is introduced here in this opening passage, and particularly in the text that is before us today. I want for you to notice this very important little phrase at the very end of verse 6, in the beloved. This phrase is of utmost importance. It links the previous passage with the one that we are considering today. In the beloved, we read at the end of verse 6. The word beloved here is used by Paul as a name for Christ. It is a rare name for Christ, used nowhere else in this form. And no doubt it is meant to highlight Christ as the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. When Paul refers to Christ as the Beloved, he is desiring to emphasize the incarnation. Christ as the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. 
The name Beloved hearkens back to that episode recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wherein at the baptism of Jesus, a voice was heard from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That is Mark 1.11. There at Jesus' baptism, God the Father publicly identified Jesus as the Christ and his beloved Son. And this corresponds to the good news proclaimed so beautifully and famously in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus the Christ is the beloved Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. And as I have said, this phrase, in the beloved links the previous passage with the one that we are considering today. It helps us to pivot from a focus upon God the Father and what he has done. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. It helps us to pivot from that focus to a focus upon the one through whom these spiritual blessings have been secured and provided, namely, Jesus the Christ, the beloved Son of God. God the Father chose us to be holy and blameless before him. This he did, being moved only by his love. And this he did before the foundation of the earth. But this blessing would be secured and provided only through the work of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Similarly, God the Father predestined us to adoption as sons. This he did according to the purpose of his will. This he did in eternity past, but this adoption would be secured and provided only through the work of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When we talk about the doctrine of predestination, therefore, there are many things that we can say. We can talk about being predestined for adoption, to the forgiveness of sins, and to good works, etc., But we should not forget to say what this passage says so beautifully, that God predestined us to have all of these blessings and many more through union with Jesus the Christ. This was his plan. This was his decree. I think it is helpful to note that the teaching we find here in Ephesians corresponds to that prayer that Jesus prayed in the presence of his disciples not long before his crucifixion as recorded in John 17. And I would like for you to turn there so that you might see what Paul teaches here in Ephesians was certainly believed by Jesus. For he could not pray what he prayed unless the things taught by Paul were true. And so turn to John 17. We will read large portions of this text. And as I read, see if you cannot make the connection between the doctrine and application that is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this high priestly prayer which Jesus offered up to the Father before his crucifixion. In John 17, 1, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested or shown your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And a little bit further on in the same passage, Jesus continues to pray, saying in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I hope that you are able to see the connection between the high priestly prayer of Jesus here in John 17 and Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It is as if Paul, in the first half of his letter, teases out and develops the theological truths which undergirded Jesus' prayer namely the Father's election of some in eternity past before the foundation of the world, to be in the Son, united to him by faith. I hope you were able to see that theme in Jesus' high priestly prayer. It is clearly stated. And after developing these theological truths, Paul, in the second half of his letter, urges us to strive for that which Jesus prayed, namely unity and peace with one another, given our unity and peace with God the Father through faith in the Son. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one, and Paul exhorts us to be one, saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This exhortation to be unified is rooted in the fact that we, each one of us individually, have been joined to Christ if we have faith in him, having been given to Christ by the Father before the creation of the world. I wonder if you would allow me to pause just for a moment to make a rather obvious but often overlooked observation. Do you notice that when Paul set out to help Christians to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that they might then walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, he did not hide that so-called controversial doctrine of election or predestination, but rather he began with it. And I want for you to think of that for a moment. 
Paul, when writing to the Christians in Ephesus, led with the doctrine of predestination, teaching that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He led with that doctrine. It has been almost nine years since many of us walked away from that watered-down and doctrinless form of evangelicalism and into the Reformed tradition. It has been some time, therefore, since I've lived in that world where pastors and churches say, well, we don't talk about doctrines like the doctrine of predestination because they are controversial. We focus only on the essentials. We just talk about Jesus and his love for us. Doctrine divides, Jesus unites. It has been some time since I have interacted in a substantial way with people who are of this opinion. But as we have begun to study the book of Ephesians, and as we have considered Paul's purpose for writing to help us comprehend the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, and as we have considered how Paul begins this epistle with an emphasis upon the doctrine of predestination, all of those memories have come flooding back to me. And it made me think, how can a pastor who has been appointed by God to be a minister of the gospel neglect to preach and teach this doctrine to his people? What right does a pastor have to say it would be better if we did not talk about this doctrine? It's too much for the church to handle. It's too divisive, etc. Friends, this is not our call to make. As ministers of the gospel, we are called to preach and to teach the word that has been entrusted to us by Christ and his apostles. And when Paul set out to strengthen the Ephesians in their knowledge of the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. And as he set out to exhort them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, he did not bury this doctrine. He did not skirt the issue. Instead, he opened with it. He opened his epistle with an emphasis upon the fact that God has chosen us in Christ Jesus. He has predestined us to adoption as sons through him. He opened with this doctrine not to be controversial, but because it is true. If you are united to Christ by faith, adopted as sons and blessed in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, it is because God chose you in eternity past. He predetermined that you would be in Christ by faith. Not only is it true, but knowing this, is essential if you are to comprehend the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God's love for you is truly great. He loved you, not because you were lovely. He loved you because he determined to set his love upon you out of his goodness and by his grace. This doctrine of predestination is not an unessential doctrine, friends. To the contrary, it is the root and source of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. We are blessed in the Beloved because God determined in eternity past to bless us in the Beloved. This doctrine of predestination is not an obscure or rare doctrine. 
To the contrary, Paul speaks of it in all of his letters. I wonder, have you read Paul's letter to the church in Rome, particularly chapters 8 and 9? Have you read Paul's letter to the church in Colossae? To them he said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, Paul there in his letter called Colossians emphasizes that as Christians, those who have faith in Christ, they are God's chosen ones. To Timothy, Paul said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. To Titus, he wrote, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. To the churches in Galatia, Paul said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So there we have a reference to the will of God, to the decree of God. On and on I could go. This truth that God predestined those who would be saved in Christ is not a fringe doctrine in Paul's writings. Instead, it is central. It is foundational. Unless we think that this doctrine was unique to Paul, we should remember that it was Jesus himself who prayed for those given to him by the Father before the creation of the world. This is a reference to God's predestinating. It was Jesus who said, For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Christ himself said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It is no surprise, then, that the other apostles of Jesus also led with this theme in their writings. First Peter 1.1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And so this piling up of verses will do for now. The point is that this doctrine of election or predestination is not obscure. Instead, it is pervasive in both the Old Testament and the New. And neither is it unclear. What can be more clear than this, friends? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This doctrine of election or predestination is very clearly stated in the pages of Holy Scripture. This doctrine is vital to our comprehension of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. He loved us not because we were lovely. Instead, though we were vile and rebellious, dead in our sins, and by nature children of wrath, God determined to set his love upon us because he is gracious and kind. How humbling this is. 
And if you are a minister of the gospel listening to this message today, I ask you, why would you withhold this vital doctrine from your people? What gives you the right as a servant of the king to decide what is good for them? Is that not God's prerogative? Are we not to simply be faithful to preach the word that has been entrusted to us? To be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We are to stop being driven by fear. The fear that some might walk away from us if we preach this doctrine. Truth be told, they walked away from Christ when he taught these doctrines in John 6. And many goats may walk away from you, but the sheep will be strengthened by this. And so, brothers, I appeal to you, if you are a minister of the gospel, then be faithful to teach that which has been entrusted to you. I urge you to do what Timothy was urged to do, to be faithful to preach the word in season and out of season. This is to be done with complete patience and teaching. I will acknowledge that these doctrines need to be handled with great care. In fact, our confession of faith, after speaking of God's decree, uh, does emphasize this, that these doctrines need to be handled with great care so that the people of God are, in fact, encouraged and strengthened by them and not discouraged and confused. But we must preach and teach these doctrines nonetheless. And to the Christian, I say, Do not ignore the doctrine of predestination. Instead, contemplate it. Cease from standing as judge over the scriptures. Instead, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let us now return to the text of Ephesians. Stated simply, here in verse 6 of Ephesians 1, we learn that every blessing that God the Father determined to give his elect in eternity past is only ours in the Beloved. These blessings are ours in the Beloved as we are united to him by faith. I would encourage you to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 again later today and take special notice of the phrases in Christ or through Jesus Christ, or in the Beloved, or in Him, and through His blood. These phrases are peppered throughout this text. In the ESV, there are 12 such phrases. In the Greek text, there are actually 13. There is, in fact, another in Him at the end of verse 10, which is left untranslated in the ESV because it is so repetitious. Uh, Literally, verse 10 reads like this, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth in him, in him we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11 then begins. The ESV leaves the in him at the end of verse 10 untranslated because it is extremely repetitious, which I think is unfortunate. The extreme repetition was deliberate. Paul's intention was that this passage would be read aloud in the congregation and that this section, the section that runs from verses 6b through 10, would end with one big final in him in order to drive home the central point that he is making. But even with the omission of the final in him, the passage is very clear. God the Father 
predestined some to be reconciled to himself, and this would be accomplished through the mediation of his beloved Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 6 through 10 give special emphasis to what the Son has done to accomplish our redemption. And so what did the Beloved do? What has Christ, who is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, accomplished? Well, first of all, in verse 7, Paul says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What did the Beloved accomplish? Well, Christ accomplished the redemption of all who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. This word translated as redemption means to release or set free, with the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave, that is the definition that the Greek lexicon Lonida gives to it. This process of freeing a slave would undoubtedly require that some price be paid, a sum of money would need to be paid in order to redeem a slave. But notice that Christ did not offer up a sum of money to redeem us, but instead to procure our redemption, he offered up his blood. Our redemption was procured through his blood. His blood was the purchase price. His life was the payment. The question that must be asked is, to whom or to what were we enslaved? And the answer is sin. Notice that that is what Paul emphasizes. Again, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins. Paul will pick up this theme later in his epistle to elaborate upon what it means to be in bondage to sin. In Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, we learn that in sin we are spiritually dead. In sin we are in bondage to the ways of this world. In sin we are in bondage to the evil one. In sin we are in bondage to the desires of the flesh. And in sin we are deserving only of God's wrath. Read with me in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and notice how terrible the bondage of sin is. Paul here is writing to Christians in Ephesus, but he is reminding them of their bondage prior to coming to faith in Christ. He is reminding them of what Christ redeemed them from when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, referring to the evil one, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This, friends, is the bondage that Christ redeemed us from. He redeemed us from the bondage of sin, which is, in fact, bondage to death, to the world, to the evil one, to the passions of the flesh, and to the sure outpouring of the wrath of God upon us. Christ, by his shed blood, through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, has set us free from this bondage. He tasted death for us. He took our place, for the wages of our sin is death. He lived in the world, but never was he of this world. He defeated the evil one. He lived in the flesh, but never was he ruled by the flesh, only the Spirit of God. Never did he sin, and he took upon himself the wrath of God, 
which was the just punishment that was owed to us, and by this work, by his obedient life and sacrificial substitutionary death, he has redeemed us from the curse of sin. And friends, I want for you to see that according to the scriptures, this is man's greatest need. He must be freed from his bondage to sin and death. And this is the need that Christ came to meet. He came to redeem us from our bondage to sin and all of its consequences. And so I must ask, are you in him? Have you been redeemed by him, set free from your natural bondage? Secondly, in verses 7c through 10a, we see that Christ, through his obedience— has accomplished and revealed God's plan of redemption, a plan that, though revealed in the past, was largely hidden and mysterious. I want for you to pay careful attention as we read beginning in verse 7. I will replace some of the personal pronouns with the proper nouns that they refer to for the sake of clarity. In Christ, beginning in verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace, which the Father lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Notice three things about these verses. One, our redemption in Christ And the forgiveness of our sins in him are said to be according to the riches of God's grace. If you have it in your mind that God the Father is angry with you, but that Jesus loves you, it is time to put that thought away. In truth, if Jesus loves you, it is because God the Father determined to set his love upon you. Remember, in love he predestined you. And if you are redeemed and forgiven in Christ, it is according to the riches of the Father's grace. Two, notice that this grace has been lavished upon us by the Father. God has not given his elect a little grace, but he has poured it out in abundance. His grace is abundant and overflowing. If you are his in Christ Jesus, it is because he has lavished his grace upon you, the text says. I think that is worthy of our meditation. Three, this grace which was revealed in ages past but dimly and mysteriously was at just the right time revealed fully and clearly in Christ Jesus in all wisdom and insight. And here is the central thought of verses 7 through 10. This is actually a common theme in Paul's writings. And more than that, it's a common theme throughout the New Testament. The teaching is this, the gospel, or good news, that God would provide a Savior was revealed to the people of God prior to the birth of Christ. This truth was revealed under the old covenant in promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. The gospel of Christ was preached, as you know, prior to the arrival of Christ. Therefore, those who were saved from their sins prior to the death of Christ were justified by faith, just as we are, but they looked forward to the arrival of the Christ, who is also called the Messiah. They, that is, those who lived prior to the arrival of the Christ, understood some things about him, but much remained mysterious and hidden to them. 
They knew that he, the Christ, would be the son of Abraham, the son of David. They knew he would be a king, but also a suffering servant. They knew that somehow he would atone for sins and earn that which Adam forfeited, that is to say, glory in the new heavens and earth. And some had a better grasp on these truths than others did. But what exactly the Messiah would be was mysterious, even to the most godly and perceptive of the saints of old. That is what Paul means when he speaks of the mystery of God's will. He is referring to the will of God as it pertains to our redemption in Christ Jesus. And that will of God, or plan of God, was mysterious in ages past. The specifics of it were hidden and veiled. That God would provide a Savior was clear, but what he would be like was largely unknown. But when the Christ arrived in the fullness of time, or at just the right time, and as he accomplished God's will or plan in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that which was mysterious and ages past became clear. Jesus the Christ made God's will known as he accomplished it. And Paul is here saying that the entire process wherein God revealed his plan of redemption from the first utterance of the gospel to Adam to the ascension of Christ to the Father in glory was all in wisdom and insight. God's plan of redemption is wise. It is glorious. I think to fully appreciate the radical transition that took place in human history from mystery to the full revelation concerning God's plan of redemption, one only has to put themselves in the place of the original disciples of Christ. These men and women lived through this transitional period. They were raised under the Old Covenant. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They worshipped at the temple. They were eagerly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah, the son of Abraham and the son of David. And they wondered what he would be like. They knew he would come. Their faith was placed in him and in the promises of God entrusted to them. But what he would be like was mysterious to them. And then one day Jesus of Nazareth arrived on the scene. John the Baptist claimed that he was the one. He himself claimed to be the one. And his words were confirmed by miraculous deeds. And I won't tell you the whole story. The story is beautifully told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here I am asking you to put yourself in the shoes of John, for example. Imagine waking up every day as a disciple of Jesus and watching with your own eyes God's plan of redemption, which was revealed in the past, but mysteriously so, play out before your eyes. Imagine being John, watching the accomplishment of our redemption play out before your very eyes. Now imagine watching Jesus go to the cross. Imagine him being put into the grave. Those must have been very perplexing days for John and for the others. But then imagine hearing that the tomb was empty and seeing him risen. Imagine listening to Jesus' teaching concerning how all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms spoke concerning him. And then imagine seeing him ascend to the Father. In a very short time, these early disciples of Jesus watched that which was mysterious to them become clear. If you would have asked John, what do you think the Messiah will be like prior to the day that he met him? He would have said, well, 
He will be a son of Abraham, the son of David, etc. But really, I'm not sure what exactly he will be like. But if you were to ask the same man, John, what the Messiah was like after Christ's ascension, he would tell you all about him in no uncertain terms. He would describe the work that he did, the accomplishment of our redemption. And this is the phenomenon that Paul is referring to when he says that in Christ God has in all wisdom and insight made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Peter was referring to this transition from mystery to knowledge when he wrote concerning this salvation, that is, our salvation in Christ Jesus, the prophets, that is to say, the prophets of old, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is glorious. Peter is here clearly saying that the prophets of the Old Covenant, they spoke of Christ, but as they spoke of him, of his sufferings and of his glory, uh, they were uncertain as to what exactly these things meant. They knew that they were serving not themselves but you, that is to say those who would come in the future from their perspective, that one day the Christ would arrive and he would accomplish these things and make all things clear. The apostles of Christ viewed themselves as stewards of the mysteries of God. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. This is how one should regard us, he writes, as servants of Christ and stewards, servants or ministers, of the mysteries of God. This is another way of saying that they were ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For what is the gospel except the good news that God has provided a Redeemer just as he had promised from Adam's day onward? And that Redeemer has come, Christ Jesus our Lord. God's plan of redemption, which was revealed dimly and mysteriously in ages past, has now been made known, for it is finished. Jesus the Christ has accomplished the work of redemption that God gave him to do. Friends, I do hope that you enjoyed our study of the book of Genesis. But one reason it was so enjoyable is that we were able to see with clarity and certainty the ways in which that book written so long ago pointed forward to Christ in promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. And here I want for you to recognize that we were able to see Christ with clarity and certainty in that book of beginnings only because the Christ has come. The elect of God who lived prior to Christ's coming also benefited from Genesis. They too learned something about the Messiah who would descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the light was less bright for them. They sojourned in the light of the break of dawn. We sojourn in the light of the noonday sun. We live in a privileged time. To us, the mysteries of God's plan of redemption have been revealed, for the Christ has come. He has accomplished our redemption. And the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, has been instituted by his blood. Of this we are partakers. And so let us be all the more diligent to study his words that we might ever grow in our knowledge and appreciation 
of him. Lastly, and very briefly, in response to the question, what did the beloved do? Or what has the Christ, who is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, accomplished? We must say that through his resurrection, all things in heaven and earth are united in him. It is a little strange to be devoting such little time to this last phrase in verse 10, for truly it is the pinnacle statement regarding the work that Christ has accomplished. Christ has accomplished the will of God. He carried out his plan, which has as its end goal or telos the union of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. Lord willing, we will pick up here in the sermon on the next Lord's Day, and so I will only briefly explain what Paul means. He means that God's plan of redemption in Christ involves not only your salvation and mine, and not only the salvation of all of God's elect in all the world and in every age, but also the redemption of even the created earthly realm and the eventual union of these realms, the heavenly and the earthly, in the new heavens and new earth. That is the end goal or telos of God's plan of redemption. In Christ, all of God's redeemed will be brought safely home into the new heavens and earth. For now, let me just say that I am thankful that we have carefully studied the book of Revelation and the book of Genesis before coming to this study of Ephesians. In Revelation, especially in chapters 21 and 22, we are presented with a vision of the new heavens and earth. At the end of time, heaven and earth will become one. The glory of God will fill all. Only the redeemed will be there, and there will be no more sin, sickness, suffering, or death. Paul is here teaching that that was the end goal of God's plan of redemption, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Genesis, we considered God's design for Adam. He was to live under God's authority. He was to fill the earth, expand the garden temple, living in perfect and perpetual obedience to God. In the end, Adam was to eat of the tree of life and enter into glory. Heaven and earth would have become one. This the first Adam failed to do, but this the second Adam has accomplished. And that is the point that Paul is making. In Christ, all things are united things in heaven and things on earth. Paul states things a little different in Colossians, but the concepts are the same. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, I do ask you, are you in Christ? This is the most critical question that can be asked of you. Are you in Christ? Are you united to him by faith? There is no greater question than this, for only in Christ do we have 
redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. That is the point that Paul is here driving home. May the Lord bless us as we continue to study this epistle to the Ephesians. Truly, may we grow in our comprehension of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. May we come to know how high and how wide and how deep it is. And as we grow in our comprehension of God's love for us, may we then be moved to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Brothers and sisters, let's bow now for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what is taught to us here in this epistle to the Ephesians. I pray that as we continue on in our study that we would, in fact, grow in our comprehension of your love for us in Christ Jesus. May we come to see how marvelous your grace is. May we come to be astounded that you would, in love, predestine us for adoption as sons. God, we were undeserving. We were born dead in our sins. We were by nature children of wrath. We were living in rebellion against you. And yet you lavished upon us this wonderful grace. Father, help us to grow in our comprehension of your love for us in Christ Jesus. May we come to see how high and how wide and how long and how deep it is. And as we grow in our comprehension of it, may we also be moved to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Father, help us to live for your glory. Help us to live in obedience to your commands. Not so that we might earn our salvation, for none can, but out of gratitude to you. Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ today that you would sustain them. I pray that they would be healthy, that they would be strong, that they would be ever ready to proclaim this good news that we have today considered. And Father, we do long to see more and more come to believe this good news, to bow the knee before Christ and to say he is Lord. We long to see more and more transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the sins that we have committed, convict us of sin where it is present, Father, move us to repent truly and sincerely before you and even before one another. And Lord, help us to forgive those who have sinned against us also, reminding us always of the great forgiveness that has been lavished upon us through Christ. Lord, we ask that you would go with us in this coming week and help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Keep us from temptation, O Lord, and guide us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake and for our good. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from all of our sins, that we pray. Amen.